I don't know how you start these things. Well, I, Am I supposed to start it? Hello no, and no. welcome to the Radio Gaga podcast. My name is Preston. I'm your host today. And uh, with me, I have um, my sister, Justine, is here in the studio with me. Hello, Justine. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. That's great. I'll just, I'll just kind of <laughs> let you take it from here then. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. And welcome again to the Radio Gaga podcast. I'm your host, Justine Pajowski, and today we are talking about one of the most legendary progressive rock albums of all time, King Crimson's 1969 debut in the Court of the Crimson King. I had a ton of great sources for this episode. Lots of books that I own and love, including Greg Lake's autobiography, Lucky Man, which he finished writing right before he died in 2016. I also read Mountains Come Out of the Sky and Prog Rock FAQ, both by Will Romano, and David Weigel's book, The Show That Never Ends, The Rise and Fall of Prog Rock. Lastly, I did a deep dive into the website songsouponsea.com, which if you're a prog fan, you probably want to check out as it provides some in-depth analysis on the lyrics of Peter Sinfield. I'm excited to share King Crimson with you today. Perhaps some of you listening already know about this band, and there are probably a lot of you braving unknown waters. Either way, I'm hopeful that this episode is a great resource for you to learn more about one of the most beloved rock works in history. My guest today is my little brother, Preston. He's four and a half years younger than me, and it was just the two of us growing up in Illinois. We were a classic case of siblings born just far enough apart that we were always annoying to each other. We were never in the same school at the same time. I was a senior in high school when he was in eighth grade and so on and we always had vastly different skills and hobbies. He was always athletic, I wasn't. I was obsessed with A's and liked the challenge of homework, and he didn't. He was a rule breaker, I wasn't. Well, most of the time. But regardless, we always had music as a connector piece between us. We both grew up in piano lessons and we both played drums in marching band. We grew up with music in the house from our parents and I eventually started sharing some of my CDs with him before I left for college. I think one regret I have as a big sister is that I wish I would have been more intentional at that specific point in our relationship. More intentional about sharing my favorite music with my little brother when we were both kids. You hear about people growing up with music tastes that were shaped within their families, and a lot of times it's not the parents that have the biggest influence. It's their older brothers and sisters. Looking back, I feel like my own musical tastes were so scattered and I was just in my own little selfish world in high school. I remember sharing some of my favorites with him, but I don't know if I ever followed up. What did you like? What didn't you like? Maybe you should listen to this instead, etc. After I left for college, that distance brought us a little closer together and I think that's when we started talking about music more and more. I saw his music tastes change and evolve and today... He's an extremely creative music listener and talented musician. And technically, I'm still his older sister, but now I look to him in a lot of ways when it comes to music. If you're lucky to have siblings, share your music with them and ask them about their favorites, even if you didn't get the chance when you were kids. we get into In the Court of the Crimson King, one of the most groundbreaking progressive rock works of all time, 
we should talk first about progressive rock. A popular term for it is prog, or prog rock, which you've probably heard me say at some point if you've been listening to this podcast for a while. I grew up listening to progressive rock thanks to my dad, with bands like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Rush, Yes, Pink Floyd, Styx, and Electric Light Orchestra in the regular rotation. And even nowadays, I would consider some of my favorite modern bands to be progressive, including Muse, Tool, and the Mars Volta. I'm not an expert by any means. I've really just spent the last seven or eight years rediscovering the genre after growing up with it. But even just in these last few years, prog has become one of the genres of music that I most closely identify with and enjoy. It's the genre of music that has certainly made me feel the most emotion, all the way from ecstatic, jaw-dropping awe to extreme despondency and a feeling of isolation and grief. The emotion and the creativity are probably the two main reasons I enjoy this music so much, especially at my age. Creatively, there are no boundaries, which is kind of counter to adulthood, right? I think a lot of people, myself included, lose that sense of random creativity we used to have as kids. I was actually just talking to a friend of mine at dinner the other night. Her husband is Swedish and she's American. They have a toddler who they speak both English and Swedish to, and he's starting to understand both languages. My friend was telling me that children that young are such sponges for other languages because they aren't afraid to fail at speaking them. I had always thought that you're supposed to learn a second language at a young age because scientifically our brains are more apt to learn, which might still also be true. But as adults, it's harder for us to learn a second language because we don't want to mess it up. We are hardwired to be understood, while children just go for it and try it without fear of making a mistake. This made me think a lot about progressive rock, because as a listener, I can't be hesitant. Prague is rebellious music that is discontent with social norms and is ready to challenge anything that you've already heard. It was designed as a rejection of the three-minute single, something we are all really used to hearing every day. For me, listening to Prague is almost like learning another language. And just like a little kid learning a new language, I have to be okay with messing up okay with not understanding it all at first. Do I love some verse-chorus-verse-pop songs that are straightforward and super easy? Yeah, absolutely. But I also love the challenge of prog rock because it makes me unpack it slowly as I listen more and more times. By the end, there's a much deeper emotional connection. If a modern pop song is a one-night fling, fun, exciting, and sometimes leaves you feeling disappointed, The progressive rock song is a long-term relationship. Meaningful relationships challenge you, they evolve over time, and they make you emotional in both good and bad ways. That's progressive rock for me. I'm realizing also that the crazy time signatures, odd instruments, and dissonance that you hear in prog rock is counter to the kind of person I am in my job and in day-to-day life. That's probably why it feels like such a creative escape for me. I'm a personal assistant in my day job, extremely organized, by the books, etc. I'm the Monica Geller, the type A personality. And it's funny, I've, I've noticed this more recently, especially during the holidays when I was getting super out over my skis and disorganized. When I feel like my life is scattered, I'm not in a prog mood. But when I'm organized and feeling like I'm getting things knocked off my to-do list, I'm ready to listen to it again. Progressive rock, by definition, is an artistic approach to music that first developed in Britain in the late 60s. The approach, later labeled a full-on genre, fused rock with European musical styles like classical and folk music. But as far as defining what this genre has become in a musical sense, it's really difficult to do. The first problem is with the word itself, progressive. It could mean something happening gradually in stages, or an idea that promotes new and different ways of thinking, 
While both of these definitions sound like many of my favorite prog bands, technically, this word could describe a million different artists who evolved. Elvis was progressive in his time. The Beatles evolved plenty. But should we consider them progressive rock? You could argue yes. Some people think progressive rock can be defined by its long magnum opuses, suites with multiple movements, with the mood changing, progressing, throughout the framework of the song. And that's sometimes true, but plenty of hard rock and even metal does that, and those bands, Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin being two major examples, aren't necessarily considered prog rock. Not to mention within the genre itself, the variety of sounds you'll find is wider than any other genre. A band like Yes is super different from Jethro Tull, who is super different from King Crimson, who is super different from Genesis. But there are a few similarities between a lot of these bands that have become Prague's most highly stereotyped identifiers, including an arsenal of keyboards and synthesizers, extravagant album cover art, concept albums, and very interesting stage garb. Lot of wizard wear, like hats and capes. But I think what made it special and made the term progressive really stick is that it began as a European movement, not an American one. Instead of drawing from American themes like blues or country western, British rockers began turning toward the classical and folk music coming out of Europe for new styles and structures to their songs. That's why we have the concept albums, the magnum opuses with multiple movements, heavy organ and synthesizer, and a plethora of songwriting styles with European flavor. On that note, one reason progressive rock had such a moment and resonated so strongly with people in the late 60s, early 70s was what was going on in the world at the time. For instance, the Vietnam War, which today's album references a lot, the civil rights movement, the rise of technology, and on top of that, LSD aplenty. Progressive rock opened up the conversation. Steve Howe of Yes says that progressive rock was an extension of the psychedelic subculture of the 60s, but with more structure. It was more well thought out, more intense, and struck a different kind of chord with people than the peace and love of hippie sunshine folk. In fact, progressive rock didn't really talk about love that much. Whenever a woman appeared in a progressive rock song, she was never a sex object, but more of a presence, like a muse. Prague wasn't interested in the objectification of women or using curse words to sound shocking. In a lot of cases, progressive rock lyrics were about discovery of the self. Or they were super intense, like today's album, a scorched earth commentary on the hell of war. In the case of a band like Yes, it was a connection with the divine. With a band like Rush, it was punchy, deeply philosophical questions posed in stories of ancient mythology and science fiction. As you might imagine, Prague gets kind of a bad rap, with a tendency to seem a little snooty von Snootington. As my brother said to me when we were recording, there's nothing quite worse than a bloated, elitist, two-and-a-half-hour-long progressive rock album. But most of the great prog musicians just want to make art. Even the label progressive was like nails on a chalkboard to a lot of these guys, from King Crimson to Pink Floyd to Yes. The word had been adopted by the media to try and define indefinable music, and quite frankly, most of the progressives themselves hated that the word made it all sound pretentious. King Crimson vocalist and bassist Greg Lake says in his book, quote, We simply wanted to be original and make art rather than commercial rubbish. We wanted our songs to mean something, but that didn't mean we were high-minded and superior to everyone else, end quote. But honestly, though... <laughs> They kind of were superior, even if they weren't trying to be. When they first came onto the scene, King Crimson blew everyone out of the water. Original Yes guitarist Peter Banks once said, quote, We thought we were pretty hot stuff until Crimson came along. They were so much better than us that we literally said, We have to rehearse a lot more, end quote. Even in King Crimson's earliest rehearsals, producer Tony Clark swung by with the Moody Blues who, after hearing the speed of the guitars, Lake's powerful vocals, and the overall intensity of King Crimson, were so shocked that they left at the end of rehearsal in absolute silence. King Crimson is a band that exemplifies progressive rock because they were in constant pursuit of new inspiration. 
and they were willing to guide the genre past the point of accepted rock music at the time. Save for one small part on this album that is almost universally accepted as a low point, I'll get into that later, In the Court of the Crimson King is nearly a perfect progressive rock album. But before there was King Crimson, there was the trio Giles, Giles, and Fripp from Burnmouth, England. He's a one in a million He runs a little shop with a room at the top The advertisements surround it He's very content with the things at the moment Except the yellow line by the pavement But he doesn't shout about it No, he doesn't shout about it He's a one in a million In 1968, bassist Peter Giles, his brother and drummer Michael Giles, and guitarist and piano player Robert Fripp had just recorded their album, The Cheerful Insanity of Giles, Giles, and Fripp. There was an obvious chemistry between the band members, but nothing really came of that record. Around the same time, musician Ian McDonald and his girlfriend and vocalist Judy Dibel placed a Musicians Wanted ad in Melody Maker in the hopes of forming a new band. Peter Giles answered the ad and invited Ian and Judy to meet their band. They ended up meshing really well. Judy and Ian eventually broke up, and she left the band not long after that, but not before cutting a very early version of I Talk to the Wind, a song that would eventually end up on King Crimson's debut album. With Judy now out of the band, they needed a new vocalist. So they turned to one of Robert Fripp's hometown friends, singer and guitarist Greg Lake. But because they already had an accomplished lead guitarist at the helm, and they knew Lake was an accomplished guitarist in his own right, they asked Lake to learn the bass. He figured it couldn't be that difficult, only four strings instead of six, and he was brought on as bassist and frontman as Peter Giles left the group. So the lineup was nearly complete. Michael Giles on drums, Greg Lake on bass and vocals, Robert Fripp on guitar, and Ian McDonald on damn near everything else. The only remaining piece of the puzzle would be lyricist, mentor, and visionary Peter Sinfield. Sinfield was like the Grateful Dead's Robert Hunter or Prockle Harum's Keith Reed an enlightened and talented poet-turned-lyricist who quickly proved to be an extremely valuable piece of the band. The musicians brought the unbelievable skill and talent, but Sinfield brought the imagination. And there they were, this sort of odd assortment of characters brought together from different backgrounds and upbringings and musical styles. They had formed King Crimson. The purple piper plays his tune, the choir softly sing. Three lullabies in an ancient tongue for the court of the crimson. The band moved to London and began performing in small venues and speakeasies around the city. They eventually earned themselves a residency at the Marquee, basically the proving ground for some of the biggest bands to make it in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. In addition to it being the site of the first ever live performances of bands like the Rolling Stones and Fleetwood Mac, other bands who secured residencies at the Marquee included Led Zeppelin, Yes, Jethro Tull, The Jimi Hendrix Experience, 
Pink Floyd, David Bowie, Joy Division, The Cure, you get the idea. But what really put King Crimson on the map was their Hyde Park performance supporting the Rolling Stones in July of 1969. The crowd of half a million, most of whom had never heard of King Crimson, were completely blown away. The band kept touring the rest of that summer in England and the United States before settling back in to record their debut album in the court of the Crimson King. The band still basically had no money at this point, but the band's manager, David Entoven, knew if they made a record, it would be successful. So he convinced Wessex Studios to let the band use their recording facilities for free on the promise that the money would be paid back once King Crimson had a record deal. Let's look at the timing of all this really quick. The official King Crimson lineup is formed in early 1969. By April, they're moving to London and playing their first gig. Shortly after, they're in residency at the Marquis. By July, they're opening for the Rolling Stones. By the beginning of October, they've written, recorded, and released what would be one of rock's defining albums. Later that month, Pete Townsend of The Who would run a full-page ad in ZigZag magazine telling the world that King Crimson's new album was a, quote, uncanny masterpiece. That fall, they'd tour the U.S. And before the end of 1969... King Crimson would break up. We'll get to that later. But this all happened in the span of less than one year. That's just crazy to me. The pattern juggler lifts his hand in orchestra begin As slowly turns the grinding wheel in the chord of the Crimson cover of In the Court of the Crimson King is an extremely striking one. It's actually a little unsettling when you first see it. Here's my brother, Preston. The album art is crazy. I love it. It's my favorite album art of any album. Uh, it probably ever that will ever exist ever. It's just that uh, it's like burned into my brain since I first saw it. I can't. You can't unsee it. There's something definitely haunting about it. Absolutely. Uh, uh, it was designed by Barry Godber, who... Um, kind of an unknown artist at the time. His first album cover, he was a computer programmer and he just painted this. Um, and he died almost immediately after uh, painting this. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and if you look at the next album uh, in the wake of Poseidon, it's kind of like in that same vein, but it's not like as striking or anything and it's like not that. him. Yeah. So the person on the front is supposed to be the uh, the 21st century schizoid man, which we all, uh, which we are currently, I guess. We are, we are all 21st century schizoid men. Godber painted this cover in watercolors and was inspired by two things. One, his own reflection in the mirror when shaving, and two, the William Blake art print titled Nebuchadnezzar. In the print, the formerly arrogant Babylonian king is reduced to nakedness, crawling on the ground and losing all semblance of his former humanity. Look at that print with the album cover side by side and you can absolutely see the inspiration. So the 21st century schizoid man is on the front, then we turn to the inside to find the Crimson King. His character that Barry Godber painted on the inside is represented with a man's smiling face in the moon and long spindly fingers. Yeah, and I have a quote here from Robert Fripp about this. Um, if you cover the smiling face, the eyes reveal an incredible sadness. Oh, wow, they do. It's hard not to look at this cover and immediately wonder, like, what is inside? What is on this record? And, yeah, it's such um, a striking album cover. Absolutely. It's something that if you haven't seen before, as soon as you see it, you'll never forget it. Preston tells me that one of the reasons this album is difficult to find streaming online is that Robert Fripp is extremely protective of his music and he hates streaming services. If you want to listen, you can buy In the Court of the Crimson King on vinyl, or he also tells me there is a stream of it on Vimeo. No matter if you're getting your hands on it for the first time now, or if you've been wearing out your copy for the last few decades, I hope every listen takes you on a musical journey you've never been on before. I hear something new every time I drop the needle down on my turntable. This album contains only five songs and lasts a little over 40 minutes, but it's some of the most dynamic, intense, and affecting music I have ever heard. 
The music is as stunningly beautiful as the lyrics are terrifying. In the Court of the Crimson King is said to be an angry commentary on the Vietnam War and the future of mankind. Here's Preston again. I'm not really much of a lyrics guy. Like I don't analyze lyrics very well, but this is supposed to be like an anti-war um anti-war album at least the first track definitely is an anti-war album well it's i mean certainly the right time for it 1969 yeah which is it's it's interesting because this is not a hippie album by any stretch of the imagination it's like the opposite of a hippie album is like i think of hippie protest songs as like let's all hold hands let's love each other and yep. sing together and this one is like we're gonna be vaporized and uh, people cool. who don't die are gonna be miserable for the rest of their lives now that we're all in a super sunshiny mood, let's get into the tracks, beginning with what is perhaps King Crimson's signature song, 21st Century Schizoid Man. Despite being a uh, almost perfect song, an almost perfect album, it starts out with one of my uh, one of my pet peeves in, in music. You know what it is? Is it like a beeping? It's this like 30 seconds of like really quiet sound and then an explosion oh. of really loud sound, which okay. is actually one of my pet peeves in music. Um, really? But it it's okay because immediately after that loud explosion of sound is that bonkers guitar riff. It's stupid. That's just... <laughs> It's stupid. Should be illegal. It's really good. It's one of the best. Like, I mean, like the album cover. Once you hear it, you'll you'll never forget the guitar riff. Really. The, the way the guitar mixes with the saxophone makes it sound like uh, really cool. I don't know how to describe how that sounds. <laughs> really cool. That's it. And uh, I'm surprised it's not like saxophones aren't used to back guitar riffs more often. Because like this sounds really good. This is a year before, um, you know, uh, Black Sabbath would invent metal music. And here we have with us a metal riff. How would you define it as a metal riff? Just really heavy distortion and like a riff that makes you want to go crazy, you know? In, in that same vein, sort of, I like when the snare mirrors what the woodwinds are playing, like toward the middle of the song. I don't even know what the time signature is of that it. That math rocky bit. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. I don't know the time signature. I mean, I know like you're me you've memorized it, goes, it though, but, but <laughs> I don't know the time signatures. I haven't really bothered to figure out the time signature. And it's there. so ma it is it's mathematic. It's crazy. It really is. Yeah, it's math rock. As The Guardian puts it, 21st Century Schizoid Man shows King Crimson's appreciation of what makes music exciting rather than merely impressive. This song is astonishing and leaves you feeling legitimately disoriented and nervous. 
For instance, I like that there's not a ton of singing in this song, but when there is singing, it's really lo-fi and distorted. It lays such an effective groundwork for the lyrics, which are really intense. I believe what the lyrics are getting at is all this, this war and kind of the atrocities that are going on and that being, um, they're, they're well known at this point. It's 69, all this stuff's on TV, um, war footage and whatnot. All this is going to become normalized in society, in American society. And uh, we're going to become schizoid. Schizoid personality disorder like um, refers to kind of a emotional detachment from your surroundings and like inability to make like connections with other, with other people. Um, so basically the point of the song, I believe the point of the song is that this war and all the stuff that is going on in the world right now is just going to turn us into shells of human beings. And the they future. were talking about the Vietnam War at the time, but most certainly this could be, I mean, that was the 20th century. It's a, yeah, it's a timeless this is the sentiment. 21st century. And it, I mean, it really does, it really does carry a lot of weight now. Right. Yeah, after the verses, the drum fills are really choppy and interesting, and I like those. Sort of sometimes they're a little out of time, but um, they add they add to the kind of the, the nervousness and anxiety of the song. I think it's cool when music can do that, and it can actually like put you in an anxious kind of state, and then when the song is over, you feel this like weight lifted off your shoulders almost. Yeah, definitely. Especially with "I Talk to the Wind" coming up next. <laughs> the like, transition is crazy. <laughs> mcdonald's flute on this song it makes me feel like i'm in a like a fairy garden oh yeah and this to me like you had mentioned earlier there is that this is not like a hippie album i think if there were a song that would fit into that genre this song would probably be the closest to like the san francisco flowers in your hair right situation. yeah I, I would agree with you on that it, it is definitely like a psychedelic like a psych pop not really sunshine pop but it's definitely a psychedelic no i mean it's not like song. happy uh, no it's again it's it's cynical and it's kind of depressing. Um, yeah, it sounds really beautiful. It uh, does. The song, this is a, a little more, the lyrics here are a little more um, um, cryptic, a little less obvious than the last track, um, written by Sinfield, Peter Sinfield. Um, but it's, I think it's about like, just having all these questions about the world and like, you're asking them to nothing, basically. Like no one's listening to you? Yeah. Really or you could sad. it could be interpreted as like praying to a god that you don't really believe in. Right after um, Greg Lake says, "I talk to the wind." Uh, there's like a really interesting sounding. Uh, I think it's Robert Fripp doing a guitar, like a fret harmonic, and then um, Ian McDonald playing a vibraphone at the same time. I talk to the wind. My words. 
can you uh, describe a fret harmonic for those who don't know what that is? Uh, it's like, instead of pushing down on the fret, you just put your finger on the string above the fret at certain positions on the fretboard, and it makes like a kind of a sustained uh, higher pitch sound than the, than the string would make otherwise. Yeah, so there's like this weird, I, I actually am not 100% sure what the sound is, but I think it's, I think it is a fret harmonic plus vibraphone playing the same note. It sounds so cool. It's, I love it. But yeah, I love the um, instrumentals on this song. They are gorgeous. Perfect. Basically a perfect song. The drumming is is amazing. Um, I mean, I, I had to like if if I was gonna pick nits, I would say the the snare drum sound is a little bit like too um, too staccato and too punchy. I don't know, but that's the only gripe with the song that I have. false endings this song kind of has like a false ending and it comes back with a wonderful flute solo by ian mcdonald that i think is i could listen to that closing jam for the rest of my life honestly Let's move on to Epitaph. Let's move on to Epitaph. I think this is one of the most gorgeous songs I've maybe ever heard. Sure, yeah. It is It is everything that I love about progressive rock. Oh, sure, yeah. Surreal. It feels a little dystopian. Again, like we talked about, the bass line just makes the whole thing for me. Like Greg mm -hmm. Lake's vocals and his bass work on the song is just, makes me just want to cry. It's so good. Yeah, his vocals are, are uh, super like emotive and like it sounds like he's actually literally straining singing this song at certain points. I think he's he does a really good job. I can't think of a person who would... I, I, probably the, the best vocalist for this song. Um, I was so sad when he passed away. That's only like two years ago by now, right? Yeah. A lot of, uh, a lot of Prague fans were really sad. Because mm -hmm. he was definitely prolific. As I crawl 
just hear the first couple of notes of this song and you're you just kind of like wherever you're standing or sitting or whatever you're doing you just kind of like sink into it a little bit that's my experience with it is that Mm -hmm. you just like kind of melt into this song yeah it's like a wave taking taking you over kind of yeah the mellotron definitely uh definitely um aid to this song can you talk about the mellotron a little bit i could try yeah (laughs) mellotron's a weird instrument it's like we talk s- about it on the we I talked about it with Kaylee on the OK Computer episode a little bit the Mellotron mm-hmm. but yeah give give everybody kind of an overview of what of what that is if you can. It's like a it's like a old timey synthesizer but instead of like a digital like digital sounds in the in the keyboard um, it's actually like literal tape that sounds are 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 recorded on inside of the Mellotron so like when you hit like the middle C key. There's like a corresponding tape for a middle C and it draws that tape across like a, a head that reads it and plays it out. Um, and so you can like record different types of sounds onto a Mellotron. Um, a lot of it was, I, I know a lot of it was like used for choral sounding stuff like voices. Nights in White Satin by uh, Moody Blues. Oh, that's a Makes well-known one. Really good so use of the Mellotron. Yeah. Thoughts they cannot defend just what you want to be, you will be in the end, and I love you. In addition to providing the inspiration for the record label Epitaph Records, I think King Crimson's Epitaph is the song that gives us the most emotional depth. The song reflects the fears of the time, in particular a nuclear apocalypse and the senselessness of war. As a result, the narrator experiences a journey of confusion and despair right in front of our eyes. The lyrics are just unbelievable. I feel tomorrow I'll be crying. Like gives me chills whenever Greg Lake sings that part. Just all full of despair. Yeah. But still very beautiful. Yeah. And maybe that's a commentary on on life. We feel content in our destruction. But I think he's talking about how he's going to get destroyed and it's out of his hands. It's some decision made by like uh, you know, powerful people you know, kind of reigning above us all that are going to get us all destroyed. Not a happy song.
let's go ahead and flip the record and uh, move on to Moonchild. five tracks on this album there has to be a best and there has to be a worst this is in my opinion the worst song on the album is this like oh this is the worst if i had to pick one or like you don't like this song look i like the song but (laughs) the story of this song they recorded the rest of the songs and they still had some time to fill on the album and they had a choice do we put a cover on the album which, thank God, they didn't put a cover on this album. Oh, that would be horrible. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> what would they cover? I don't know. Some Beatles song, probably. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, so instead of instead of doing a cover, they kind of took an unfinished track, Moonchild, um, and they kind of just slapped on this 10 minutes of free improvisation to the end of it. And I don't hate the free improv section of the song. I think that the song is, is sort of details like the Moonchild who is kind of this this wispy like fairy bouncing through the forest and dancing around a willow and farting rainbows and whatever. <laughs> and I think the the free improv section like does play into that. Like it sounds like that. Like clicks and clacks and pings going on. Like I think it does kind of make that sort of sounds like that environment. It's kind of a tune out jam for me anyway. Definitely. If yeah, if you have to go to the bathroom, uh, you know, you got or wait, take a quick nap. Take a quick nap make a sandwich, whatever, you can do it during this. You're not going to miss much. The vocal melody in, like, the the Moonchild part is probably the... uh, most beautiful vocal melody on the album and so this is what's frustrating about this album to me is that it has so much potential they could have played more of this moonchild song or revisited the moonchild melody like after the improv bit kind of the whimsical lyrics um kind of the goofy psychedelic lyrics remind me of like um like sid barrett era pink floyd stuff like that so i really wish that they had played more of this um but yeah that's that's the track Moonchild, two and a half minutes of, of beautiful and then 10 minutes of free improv. The next and final song on the album is titled The Court of the Crimson King. This song is also split into two movements titled The Return of the Fire Witch and The Dance of the Puppets. Many of you may know the Crimson King as the multidimensional demon antagonist of Stephen King's Dark Tower series, but it's also a common euphemism for the devil. And in the context of this album, especially this song, You could argue that the Court of the Crimson King, where all this terror is going down and the puppets dance, is hell. The meaning is clear. The end of everything is near and there's not a damn thing we can do about it. The lyrics to this song are extremely evocative and make me shudder. In addition to a very Baroque style in the instrumentation, you'll hear a lot of references to a colorful medieval court in this song, with characters including the Crimson King, the Purple Piper, the Black Queen, and the Pattern Juggler. You also get a lot of sensory sound and taste with terms like evergreen and sweet and sour. It's just a really fantastically written song.
This is such a dark, such a dark album. Definitely, death is a is a, a theme of this album, um, and you know, the implication is that if we're talking, if we're in the court of the Crimson King, you know, we're dead, and we ended up uh, we ended up downstairs. he says king like in the court of the crimson king, king every yeah. time it just like goes in this big grandiose um wall like, sound all hands on yeah. deck yeah exactly and then it kind of dies down again and then he sings the verse and mm -hmm. all those verses are so those are so haunting and i think it brings back those like war wartime themes the yellow jester does not play, but gently pulls the strings mm -hmm. and smiles as the puppets dance. And then he's talking about widows crying, like, at the time. Um, I mean, you saw a lot of death, a lot of destruction, a lot of broken families. Mm -hmm. That's such a horrible line here. It's just, on soft gray mornings, widows cry. The wise men share a joke. Like, that's just, that's, that's, that juxtaposition of how horrible wartime is and then wise men sharing a joke right i assume the wise men are talking about politicians or whoever's pulling the strings i think it's people above everything yeah who mm -hmm. are who, yeah. who don't have to deal with the the aftermath on soft gray mornings widows cry the wise men share a joke i run to grasp divining signs to satisfy the hoax the yellow jester does not play, but gently pulls the strings. Smiles as the puppets dance in the court of the crimson. Let's talk about the false ending. You said you liked false endings. <laughs> this, yeah. is the, this is one, for, one for the ages. Yeah, the song like pretty much completely ends, and then it kind of like comes back it goes into that little like <laughs> carnival so like weird off kilter like that's like that's the creepiest part of the album i think sounds like you're on like a merry-go-round merry -round. Yeah. yeah but like a really creepy merry-go-round like in hell mm -hmm. uh, and the little like ride symbol taps and the yeah. little like it almost seems like remember at the end of have a cigar on wish you were here by pink floyd they they're singing have a cigar normally like in the recording studio and you're listening to it and then by the end it ends with this and it like sucks you into this radio and then you hear it played oh yeah on the radio. yeah yeah i kind of feel like that with this song a little bit really where okay. you're you're listening to them talk about all these things that are happening in the court of the crimson king and then like very creepily by the end of the song like you're in it like oh, you're, you're in, in it. court oh, we're you're in, in it. this like <laughs> this creepy like jester carnival madness that this whole album has been building up to. This carnival music makes it sound like it's all very light and it's even, you know, 
humorous and a joke, and it's definitely not. It's really no, then it scary. comes back. It comes back, and it's like mm-hmm. louder than it was before, and it's like kind of sloppier. Like the the keyboards are sloppier, and the the vocals are a little sloppy. nostalgia is part of the reason i think why psychedelic rock like this kind of like psychedelic stuff was so like why that was so big in the 60s like when it was um because you know like the beatles and like those psych pop groups they were making music that reminded them of like songs that they heard when they were a kid like children's songs um and yeah so it's like it's it's definitely a nostalgic sound for a lot of people i think that's why that's why it sounds um so indescribable because <laughs> trying to describe nostalgia. The magic harnessed in that first album, that original lineup of King Crimson, marked one solitary moment in time where the stars aligned about as perfectly as they could have. But the magic wouldn't last long. The final performances of the original King Crimson lineup would take place just mere months after the release of In the Court of the Crimson King. Before a series of shows at Fillmore West in San Francisco, with the Nice and the Chambers Brothers on the bill, Ian McDonald and Michael Giles, two founding members of King Crimson, made the decision to leave the band and stop touring. Robert Fripp, not wanting the magic to end, went to singer and bassist Greg Lake to let him know they could begin a new band a new iteration of King Crimson. But Lake declined, knowing that without the original lineup, it just wouldn't be the same. Serendipitously, it was at those same shows where Lake ended up meeting Keith Emerson of the Nice, who together would go on to form the Prague supergroup Emerson, Lake, and Palmer not long after. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. We're so glad you could attend. Come inside, come inside. There behind the glass stands a real blade of grass. Be careful as you pass. Move along, move along. Come inside, the show's about to start. Ian McDonald went on to form the band Foreigner in 1976. He would later join a short-lived King Crimson alumnus group called 21st Century Schizoid Band in the early 2000s with Peter Giles, Michael Giles, and other former members of the band. And Robert Fripp didn't give up on King Crimson. There have been a couple hiatuses since 1970, but Robert Fripp has kept King Crimson alive and has been the sole consistent member for the past 50 years, as well as a collaborator with Brian Eno, David Bowie, Peter Gabriel, and many others throughout his long career. King Crimson had former Yes drummer Bill Bruford as a hired gun at different points in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, as well as lyricist Peter Sinfield, Don Henley's drummer Ian Wallace, and founding member of Bad Company, Boz Burrell. All in all, King Crimson would release 13 studio albums between 1969 and 2003, including In the Wake of Poseidon, Lark's Tongues in Aspic, Red, and Three of a Perfect Pair. Just in time for the band's 50-year anniversary, 
The current lineup of King Crimson recently announced 2019 world tour dates beginning in August. In addition, the band plans to reissue their back catalog, come out with a new documentary, and release a new edition of the now out-of-print band biography. Arguably, In the Court of the Crimson King was the definitive prog rock album before Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon in 1973. The album actually became a direct target for those pimply little twits that came into prominence in the mid-70s, punk rockers. Music media began pitting prog and punk against each other, with prog positioned as the bloated, overblown face of rock, and punk as the new, fast, exciting genre that wanted to burn it all down. It was definitely more nuanced than that, especially since I know for a fact that a lot of punk rock was inspired by progressive rock. It's well documented that Johnny Rotten grew up listening to prog, and Joe Strummer was an ex-hippie. And in later years, progressive rock would adopt some inspiration from punk. But they will always have one major thing in common. I think prog and punk are still both grossly misunderstood genres in their own right. But that feels like another conversation for a different day. King Crimson had a huge moment during the grunge movement of the 90s. Kurt Cobain cited the band's 1974 album Red as one of his favorite records, and of course, every plaid-clad Seattle rocker followed suit to try and decode Cobain's genius. Many other modern bands have also cited King Crimson as a major influence, including Tool, Between the Buried and Me, Umphreys McGee, Primus, and Dream Theater. By the way, I would strongly, strongly recommend any and all of those bands if you don't already listen to them. Even beyond that, the Flaming Lips decided in 2012 that they'd record and release a tribute, a song-for-song -song remake of In the Court of the Crimson King, with some help from other bands. There's no doubt the long-lasting effect King Crimson's music had, not just on the world of progressive rock, but music in general. It's bands like King Crimson, especially albums like In the Court of the Crimson King, that just time and time again make me feel lucky and excited to be a music fan. Thank you so very much for joining me today. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please do give the Radio Gaga podcast a rating and review in iTunes. I always appreciate your support. Next week, I'm doing what I consider to be a grossly underrated album, and that is Coldplay's debut album, Parachutes. We'll talk all about the members of Coldplay, how they got there, and how Parachute's release in 2000 initiated Coldplay's insane rise as one of the most popular arena rock bands of all time. So give that a listen this week, and I'll see you back here on Tuesday. Don't you